We've been speaking now for several weeks about the tribulation time, and we find ourselves now, as we are considering this survey of the end times events, it's not really a deep study, although I'm trying to give you as much information as I can, um, we, we, we continue now in this survey, uh, and we, we're at the midpoint of the tribulation. We, we spoke of the events that would take place in the first half, and even this evening, we'll, we'll bring up a couple more, in fact. But as we considered the first half of, of this time that's known as the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation, uh, we considered, first of all, the regathering, the peace in Israel, the regathering of God's people of Israel because of that peace accord, a peace accord that the Bible says is initiated uh, at the beginning of this seven years. And as it's initiated, it's initiated by the prince of the people that should come, that being uh, who we now know as Antichrist. And we also considered, in the first half of the tribulation, or the first three and a half years as we consider it, um, the seal judgments. As Jesus Christ popped open each one of those seals and accompanying it, uh, a sign, a judgment, something going on. And with each one of these seals being opened, it was almost a build-up. It was a warning. These are warning calls, we might say. Not so much the, the, the talking about the, the physical and the greatest of the judgments that is to come, but the warning signs of the judgment that is to come. And so we thought about that, and we talked about the seals, and we sought to apply it to our hearts and to understand what God uh, is doing. Now we reach some of the events surrounding the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, as we consider these events around the midpoint of the tribulation, I, I can't exactly tell you in, in full when all of these will be. Now, some of them will be, um, we'll, we'll, we'll be seeing some culmination of the first three and a half years, we might say, of events that we learn more about the, the culmination at that three and a half year point than we learn about the actual events as they took place for the three and a half years. Some other things uh, will be a little bit uh, even more nebulous. We're putting some things together, we think this is what, uh, this is what the scriptures say. And the keys to our understanding of the crucial events surrounding the midpoint of the tribulation, as we've talked about before, rests in two passages, Daniel 9 and Matthew 24. The first making the second clear, or we might say actually in many ways, the second making the first clear. Let me read to you these passages. I'm sorry they're a little smaller on your screen there, uh, on the screen this evening, trying to uh, get them both together. However, um, I do encourage you, if, if you can't read that, to certainly turn in your Bibles. You're in Matthew 24. And we'll be reading verses 14 and 15. Uh, I'll read to you Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The scriptures say, And he shall, that's this, um, this presumably, probably, this prince that shall come, who we call Antichrist, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined... Uh, shall be poured upon the desolate. So what we do understand, what we do see, is that at the midpoint of the tribulation, in the midst of the week, the middle point of the week, he will cause sacrifices to cease and he will uh, do what is called in Scripture the abomination of desolation. Now, if we look in history, we would think this time to be around 164 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple of God, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and desecrated the temple. However, then we get to Matthew 24. You're there with me in Matthew 24. And Jesus says these words beginning in verse 14. 
Matthew 24, 14 says, and the, this gospel, this is Jesus speaking, of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. And then he gives some advice. Flee. Jews, flee. Flee from the wrath of this one. Flee to the mountains. And so... Jesus speaks of some difficulties, some trials, some tribulations, uh, the, the beginning of sorrows prior to the abomination of desolation. However, Jesus makes it very clear that the abomination of desolation, as of his day, is still a future event. And so he tells his disciples, when you see this, when you see the abomination of des desolation standing in the holy place, when he is there... As Daniel said he would be, you need to flee. Now, we wouldn't know exactly when Jesus is talking about here, except we know, Daniel 9, that this is going to happen in the midst of the 70th week. And so because we know what Daniel 9 says about the abomination of desolation, we know when Jesus is speaking of here. And that gives us the confidence to say the things that he was speaking of prior to Matthew 24, 14 and 15 are things that are going to happen in the first three and a half years. And the things that happen after this are things that probably will happen in the second or the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So that is the basis, the, 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 this pivotal event, the, the abomination of desolation kind of being our, our milestone. And we hinge everything we understand about the, the end times off of that milestone. However, there are other general events that seem to fall within the same time frame. We're actually not going to speak on the abomination of desolation this week. That will be in, in the second part of our message next week on the midpoint of the tribulation. This week, as we speak about it, we're going to talk about a couple of other events. And the first event is this one that we see in Matthew 24, 14. Uh, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. So the gospel is going to go forth mightily in this time. The gospel will be preached to the whole world. We know that there will be an angel uh, flying through the heavens proclaiming the gospel of God. But we also see some other indications of what this gospel spreading will be about. Now we left off last time in our consideration of end times events found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ with the sixth trumpet sounding. And that sixth trumpet sounded uh, around the end of Revelation 9, if you recall. I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 9. We're going to be spending more time in Revelation this evening than anywhere else. So it would behoove you, now that we've seen what we need to see in Matthew 24, uh, to hop on over to Revelation. Actually, go ahead and turn to Revelation 10. Remember last time at the end of Revelation 9, we saw that that at the end, when the sixth seal sounded, or excuse me, when the sixth trumpet sounded, um, there was these army of horsemen, 200,000 thousand horsemen that came uh, that, uh, from the four angels that were loosed from the river Euphrates, and uh, they were able to kill a third part of, of men by smoke and by fire and by brimstone, and... and um, the scriptures say that those who did not, uh, were not killed, refused to repent of their sin. 
In Revelation 10, John sees an angel stand with one foot on land and one on sea. In prophetic language, oftentimes the sea is a picture of the Gentile world and the land is a picture of um, Canaan or Israel or, or the land that's uh, been regularly called Palestine. I'm always hesitant considering uh, the misnomers of our age to call that piece of land Palestine because it seems to imply that, um, that something in our age, it implies a land apart from Israel. But really, the land of Palestine was a designation prior to the nation of Palestine um, that was simply meant to designate the land that we could also call Canaan. So regularly, I, I feel more comfortable calling it Canaan so that we understand what we're talking about here. And typically, the land is seen as that, um, that, that land of, of Canaan or the nation of Israel and the sea is the Gentile world. So this angel, this angel has a rainbow over his head, um, much, much in imagery of faithfulness, uh, um, much imagery of, of that which is divine. And he is standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, representative that he is over the entire world. He's over both, um, both Israel as well as the Gentile world. And he utters words. And a- after the words are uttered, um, John is, is sitting there with his pen and the, the scriptures say the angel commands him not to write those words down to seal those words up, to not record them. So we don't know what the angel uttered. We're reminded from this that God has not revealed to us everything. He has chosen not to reveal to us everything. There are things that we just plain don't know. There are things that we only speculate and we say, uh, would that God would have given us more information, but we remind ourselves that the fact that He didn't give us information uh, is because he didn't choose to. And in Revelation 10.7, the scripture states this, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. Revelation 10.7 states that the day, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, the sound of the trumpet of the, the seventh angel, This will finish the mystery of God. That means when the seventh trumpet sounds, we can be confident that we are, we are on the home stretch. We are on the back end of the events of the Great Tribulation. If we might put it this way, the seven years of of tribulation are almost like a hill, or, or let's just say a roller coaster. How many of you like roller coasters? Some hands here, some hands not up. I love roller coasters. And you know, one of the things that's really fun about roller coasters is that first hill, right? Because you have to get enough momentum going into that first hill. It's a part of a roller coaster. You, the first one has to be the highest or you can't get over the next. That's, that's, that's physics. So that first hill is the wall up. It's the big one. And you're going and you start and it's like, and then tick, 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 tick. And then you go down a little hill, right? to get you up and then you kind of go up this hill and then chink, you catch on the chain and it's like clink, 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 clink. And you hear that tick and it's kind of lurching a little bit as it's trying to get all those people up there. And you're like, oh, it's coming. And then you kind of get to the top and you start feeling yourself level out. Oh, good. You know, and it's going to be so good. And you're all excited. Well, well, this is, this is kind of the opposite. This is, this is 
we are on the build up toward the downward slope, but, but instead of, this is going to be so much fun, it's click, warning, click, warning, click, warning. We're going up this hill. Let me warn you what's coming. We are about to go. What goes up must come down, world. This is God saying, it's happening. Your judgment is nigh. And the gospel of the kingdom is being preached and people are being called out of their sin and they are going to be seeing this buildup and these warning signs and uh, some of them being very divine, such as the locusts that come out of the bottomless pit, others being um, not so overtly divine but still obviously divine, uh, such as stars falling from heaven and, and water being bitter and uh, water being turned into blood and these sorts of things, very divine in that case. And so we've, we've walked through these, these warnings each one of those is kind of the click on the roller coaster. Covenant of peace. Israel regathered. Click. It's coming. Seven seals are open. Click, 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 click. As you're going up that roller coaster. The six trumpet judgments. Click, 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 click. You're, we're right near the top now. And then we, we, we speak of the gospel being preached. This is actually something that has been taking place throughout the entire three and a half years, but will culminate around the midpoint of the tribulation. And we read about this in Revelation 11. And a part of this culmination will be surrounding two men. And there's some debates in Christian circles as to whether they're men or institutions. I believe they're men. Uh, that God calls my two witnesses in Revelation 11. These two witnesses are given power to operate, the Bible says, for 1,260 days. You do your quick math as far as you, what you know about prophetic days, and you know that a prophetic month is 30 days long. It's a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. And you divide 1,260 by 30 days in a month, and you get 42 months. And you do the math real quick on that, and you take 42 months, and you say, well, there's 12 months in a year, and you divide 42 by 12, and you get three and a half years. So these two witnesses are given power for three and a half years. Power to do what? Look with me, beginning in Revelation 11, beginning in verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So he will give them power to prophesy, to spread the gospel, to call God's people back to him. We know that the angel will be flying throughout the world spreading the gospel, but we know that these two witnesses will also be in the world. And though their, their ministry will be specifically to the Jewish people, as we see them very Jewish in character, we also understand that these two witnesses are going to be known throughout the entire world. Now, I said that these two witnesses will be particularly toward the Jewish people, very Jewish in character. Notice how they are described. They are described um, as being clothed in sackcloth. This was the Hebrew symbol of mourning. It's a very Hebrew idea. They're also described as the two olive trees and the two candlesticks that stand before the God of the earth. This symbolism is very, very clear 
as to the character of these two men. It's connected to a vision that was seen by the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. Now, Zechariah was a prophet who spoke following the 70 years of, uh, of captivity. We would, uh, he would be what we would call a post-exilic prophet. He was after the exile, a post-exilic prophet. And Zechariah's ministry, there were two prophets that had a ministry. Their particular job, given by God, was to call the nation of Israel to finish the temple. See, the temple had begun, and then things had kind of trailed off. It never got finished. There was opposition in the land, and then that opposition was overcome in the days of Darius. And yet, um, during those, that time of opposition, the people got very discouraged. And they decided, we're just not going to finish this temple. And then God raised up two prophets, one Zechariah, one Haggai. And these two prophets were, were commissioned by God, specifically with a message to Israel, to get this temple built. And Zechariah saw a vision. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we read this. The angel said unto him, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. Say, Pastor, what did he just describe? Well, in this vision, Zechariah sees a candlestick with a bowl above that candlestick. The candlestick has seven flames, like we might see a menorah today. So don't think of it as just one stick, but one stick with seven arms. And each one of those arms, of course, had a flame on it. But this was not a, a wax candle as we would think of it. This candle was not lit by wax. It was lit by oil, as many candles were uh, back in that day. We kind of use wax uh, today. However, there are still oil lanterns, oil candles and such today. And this would have been an oil lantern. And above this lantern, there was a bowl. And that bowl had, a, had seven pipes going from the bowl to each one of the arms of this candlestick. So you've got a candlestick with seven arms, pipes going from the bowl to the candlestick. What that means is that anything liquid in the bowl would be filtered down to the arms of this candlestick. That's gravity. We're talking physics tonight, roller coasters. Gravity, bowl, oil, above, flowing down. This, this, is, this is how it works. So, so gravity feeds whatever liquid is in the bowl into the, the candlesticks. Now, what's in the bowl? Well, Zechariah also saw two pipes going from olive trees into the bowl. So these olive trees were tapped. Now, if you tap an olive tree, I don't know what happens because I've never done it, but presumably, if you tap an olive tree, olive oil, some oil, uh, the, or at least the concept, is that oil would come out. I don't know if that's actually the case. I know that olives are oftentimes where, where we would perceive the olive oil coming from, but perhaps just in the symbolism at least, these trees are tapped and there is oil the symbolism being that oil is coming from these trees to light these candles. 
And the message that went along with this vision was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It will not be might that will see this temple built, Zechariah. It will not be power that will see this temple built. The Holy Spirit of God will move and will see this temple built. So get on the bandwagon. So get busy doing the work of God. Trust the Spirit of God to do the work. And this, this vision was to show that there was a constant stream of the Spirit of God coming from these two olive trees through which God would work to see His work accomplished, to give the light that would be the temple in that area and to keep it aflame. Now, in the days of Zechariah, these two olive trees were Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua being the high priest, Zerubbabel uh, being the one who had been sent back to build the temple. These were the two that were labeled as the anointed ones. Zechariah 4.14 says, these are the two, the olive trees, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth and they are identified as Joshua and Zerubbabel called by God to bring about the rebuilding. Now we, we go to Revelation 11 again and we see two olive trees, two candlesticks, they're labeled, two olive trees. And we see them as standing before the God of the earth. This is likely not reincarnated Joshua and Zerubbabel. There's been Many, many debates over who these two witnesses are. Many people believe that they are Old Testament characters. Some believe it will be um, Enoch and Elijah because those are the two men in the Old Testament that did not die. They were translated. Uh, however, it seems unlikely that Enoch would be one of the, the two because Enoch really didn't have anything to do with Israel. Uh, more likely, if we're going to use Old Testament characters, would be Moses and Elijah because those were the two that were seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they represent the law through Moses and the prophets, Elijah really being the, the um, prototypical prophet. There have been some that have thought perhaps uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua again, since they are labeled in that time in, in Zechariah as being uh, the two witnesses. Uh, we don't know who these two witnesses are. There are some that try to spiritualize these two witnesses, uh, particularly those that uh, have a mid-tribulation rapture theory and believe that it's the, uh, in, the institutional church and uh, civil government and they try to do some strange stuff uh, with, with uh, symbolism there. We, we believe a little bit more literally than that. So many theories as to who these two olive trees are, but what we do know is that they're God's witnesses. And I believe... As we look at the scriptures, that we see clearly that these two would be those that would be a dual fulfillment of the promise in Malachi 4 5, that God would send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that God would send a prophet in his name with the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, we saw that incrementally fulfilled through John the Baptist, did we not? John the Baptist came before Jesus came and offered the first time the kingdom. 
the Jews rejected the kingdom. It would be entirely consistent with God as we understand the, the tenets of dual prophecy as we talked about at the beginning of this series that there would be a secondary fulfillment, a greater fulfillment of that prophecy that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord and that these two witnesses would be the ones that would come with the spirit and power of Elijah as God promised to send Elijah before the day of the Lord. So though we don't know who they are, we know from prophetic promises and their Jewish distinctives that their ministry will be toward the Jews and will probably be the reason those 144,000 Jews that we've seen that are sealed uh, during this first three and a half years of the tribulation, they are probably a major part of the reason why those 144 learn of Christ and accept Christ as their Savior. Now, according to Revelation 11, verses 5 and 6, these two witnesses will have similar power to the prophets of old. Power to cause drought, as Elijah did in the days of Ahab. Power to turn water into blood, as Moses did in the days of Pharaoh. Yet another reason why people think Elijah and Moses are them. Anyone who attacks these two witnesses for the first three and a half years of um, this ministry will be consumed with fire that comes out of their mouths. They will be divinely protected. If we could put it this way, for three and a half years, these two witnesses will be indestructible. Anyone that comes against them will be destroyed. They will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly to the Jewish people, and the world will hate them. The world will hate them. But at the midpoint of the tribulation, the scriptures tell us that their ministry will be accomplished. And they will be killed. And the scriptures tell us they will be killed by the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. Now we know that the bottomless pit was opened during the fifth seal, if you recall, at which time um, the angel fell from heaven, opened the key to the bo- uh, took the key to the bottomless pit, opened the bottomless pit, the locusts came out of the bottomless pit, you recall, and then an angel came out who was the head of those locusts, the leader of those locusts, an angel named Abaddon in the Hebrew Apollyon in the Greek. Now, whether the beast is this leader, this angel, or Antichrist himself, or the system that supports Antichrist, we we see several different beasts in Revelation, not all of them being the same. Um, Sometimes we see the beast representative of this final nation, as we see in in Daniel. The final beast being Rome, that has ten horns, and then there's an eleventh horn that comes out of that beast, and that's Antichrist, we know, the head of this beast. Um, there, there's also the, the um, beast that we see in Revelation. It would seem to be the same world government uh, with several horns, and three of those horns are plucked up, meaning destroyed. And, and um, then we, we see uh, one, of the, um, one of the horns being um, killed as unto death, in, in the book of Revelation, all of these sorts of things. And so is it the man? Is it the institution? Is it the angel Abaddon? Uh, we don't know. Somewhat ambiguous. But what we know is that these two witnesses will be destroyed. And it would be consistent for us to see that the beast is Antichrist. Based upon what else we'll learn, we'll talk about that next week. But we just can't quite know for sure. This beast, whoever he may be, is given power to kill these witnesses. 
at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. After 1,260 days, the beast is given power to kill these witnesses. And Revelation 11 tells us that this will be a point of great rejoicing for the earth. Look at verse 7 of Revelation 11. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which, is, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Hmm. So these, three, these two witnesses will be destroyed by the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit and the people will be so happy. They won't even bother to bury them. These, these witnesses will be dead in Jerusalem, the city that spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt where Jesus was crucified. They will lie in the street dead and people will have a party. They'll be sending gifts to one another. They'll be rejoicing. It, 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 it's it's kind of like uh, what we would think of the pictures of D-Day or of uh, VE Day or of uh, VJ Day in World War II where the, they claim the victory in Europe, they claim the victory in, in, in Japan or in Asia. And uh, when that happened, there was great celebration in the streets. People would just pour out into the streets and be uh, rejoicing, parades. It's going to be like that when these two witnesses are killed. Sending gifts to one another. Rejoicing one with another. So for three and a half days there will be mirth. There will be joy. And these witnesses will just lie dead in the street. The Scriptures say after three and a half days, Revelation 11 and 12, they'll rise to their feet, be given life by God, and will ascend into heaven before their enemies. Their enemies will watch as they rise to their feet, probably in horror, the whole world will watch. Can you imagine? You know, think about the technology that we have today. I don't know uh, how much this would have impacted believers, um, say, 80 years ago, 90 years, 100 years ago, but the technology that we have today Cameras focused on these witnesses, on this battle, on these dead witnesses. Footage of these witnesses lying in the streets as everyone around the world is celebrating because these two witnesses are dead. Probably, they attributed the ministry of these witnesses with all of the plagues and judgments. Thought, hey, the witnesses are dead, now the judgments will stop. Because after all, these witnesses had been ministering for three and a half years, right? the same three and a half years where the seals were being broken and the trumpets were being sounded. So they probably very closely associated these two witnesses with these judgments and thought, witnesses are now dead. Judgments will now stop. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. Let's enjoy it. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then the cameras trained on these dead witnesses, they come back to life. Could you imagine the horror around the world? And then they ascend into heaven. They're gone. But the people know now that they're dealing with something bigger than just a couple of witnesses. They're dealing with something greater. These witnesses are alive 
and have been taken to heaven. There's two more interrelated events that we must speak of in connection to the halfway point of the tribulation. We'll only speak of one more today. We'll get to the other one next week. The event that we need to speak of today is the event of Satan's removal from heaven. We did speak of it briefly in Sunday school this morning. And that event, the, the next event, the event that we'll speak of next week is the beginning of the abomination of desolation and the initiation of what I will call the campaign of Armageddon. Armageddon is often seen as one battle, but really in Scripture, we, we seems like it's more of a campaign that lasts the entire final three and a half years of the tribulation more than it is one particular battle. In Revelation 12, John says there appeared a great wonder in heaven. He's taken back into the heavenly realm. And he goes on to describe a woman with a crown of 12 stars on her head who gave birth to a child. She labors in travail over this child. And then there appears a red dragon having seven heads, seven crowns, and ten horns. And as John is watching, he sees this woman, he sees her in labor, he sees this dragon. And as soon as the dragon is, or the the child is born, Verse 5 says, She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to His throne. The beast desired to devour this child as soon as it was born, but the child was swept up, caught up unto God. And the imagery is very clear, is it not? Woman with twelve, a crown of twelve stars. This, this is Israel. Israel is often described in Scripture as a woman, and she has a crown with twelve stars on her head. That being the twelve tribes of Israel, and she is laboring in travail with one who would rule with a rod of iron. The Old Testament prophets being clear that Jesus Christ will come, that Messiah will come to rule and reign over the nations and He will rule with a rod of iron. And even in Revelation chapter 2, we see the promises made to the churches that if they overcome, they too will rule with a rod of iron as they will rule and reign with Christ one day. And this child is caught up unto God where the dragon could not destroy him. And Michael and his ark and his angels begin to fight this dragon. The end of this battle being described in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, which says this, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven, that being the dragon and his angels. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, again, that being Israel and the Gentile nations, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. So, 
verse 12 tells us that Satan will know his time is short because he has been cast out of heaven. To this point, Satan has access to the throne room of God. We see this in Job, right? The angels coming before God and then Satan comes before God and God says, where have you been? And he says, going to and fro throughout the earth. And So we know that Satan has access to the throne of God. Well, there's going to be a great war and then Satan and his angels will be cast out for good. You're no longer welcome here, Satan. And Satan says, I know what that means. That means time is short. And so the Scriptures tell us that in lieu of him not being able to destroy the child, that being Jesus Christ, who, of course, was victorious over death and hell, the dragon, Satan, that old serpent, turns his fury toward a different target, that being the woman who bore the child. Look at verse 13 of Revelation 12. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened, up, uh, opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the Bible says that this woman will be helped to flee from the dragon for how long? A time and times and half a time. One time, two times, half a time, three and a half times. It goes on to say a few verses later, for 1,260 days. Well, we've seen that number before, right? 1,260 days being 42 months, being three and a half years. And so for three and a half years, a time of times and a half a time, Israel will flee from the dragon. Does that remind you of Jesus' warning in Matthew 24? When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of in the, by the prophet Daniel, he who understandeth, let him, or he who readeth, let him understand, then flee, flee to the wilderness. That was Jesus' warning to the nation of Israel concerning the abomination of desolation, which Daniel 9 tells us will take place at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. Do you see how it all comes together? How it all merges? It makes sense. This is why we believe what we believe. We believe what we believe because if we take a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation of the Bible, it does fit. All of these dates begin making sense. They do all merge. And so Israel will be helped to flee into the wilderness where she will hide. Scriptures say that Satan will send a flood out of his mouth. Uh, could still be that water versus earth analogy. The uh, Gentile world as opposed to um, those that are in Israel or in the land of Canaan. Now, next week we'll look closely at the event that is called the abomination of desolation. The event which is described as being the halfway point of the tribulation. Our pivot point as we study all of this.
But as we close today, let's take a few moments to apply these truths to our hearts. And I remind you of what God said to the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 33. Remember, Ezekiel was really where this whole series started. We preached through Ezekiel. And I wanted to give you more insight into what Ezekiel was saying in these latter days. And in Ezekiel 33:11, God says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God states it here. The inspired record is full of truth. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This roller coaster that is these last seven years of the tribulation, each one of those ticks, those warnings, the 1,260 days of the, the witnesses preaching, the angel that's flying through the world preaching the gospel of the kingdom, what we see is a God continually extending His mercy. Continually extending His grace. Three and a half years where those who have not yet accepted Christ can have, yes, great, but, not, but, but still, relatively speaking, minor warnings that the divine, that God Himself is about to pour out His complete wrath. And it's almost as if things are revving up for those three and a half years. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The central idea of our time today has been that God's three and a half year effort at the beginning of the tribulation will be to win the world to Christ. During this time that we call the beginning of sorrows, the incline before the great plunge, God's Spirit is active in this world bringing men to the knowledge of God. And this great endeavor, which God will continue until the end, is the same battle that you and I are soldiers in today. We are in the battle for the souls of men and women, souls of our children, souls of our families, of our neighbors, of our co-workers, and of our friends. This morning that we are, we learned this morning that we are tools to be used in the hand of the Master. And so it is. We were exhorted to be the best tool we can be to be used by God in the best way possible for His glory. And we're reminded today, this evening, that time is short. May this lesson, may God's heart for the souls of men help sharpen us just a little bit more to become the tool that we need to be for this battle. See, because after next week, we'll learn about the abomination of desolation in the beginning of the war, uh, that, that the campaign of Armageddon and the war that will break out between the king of the north and the kings of the east and the king of the south and the western world empire. And as we learn about all of this turmoil and all of this war, that th this beginning of sorrows will be like a picnic compared to what is yet to come. May God help us today to take these truths, to learn from them, to understand them, and to apply them. Let's pray.